Hello and welcome back. It's Benjamin Rose and myself, Gedalia Gutentag, with Mishpachal's home front, a wide angle view of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Gedalia. And as we're speaking today, the IDF is operating in Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus, which is a area of the southern Gaza Strip, not quite at the Rafah border, but close. It's the place where the governing body of uh, Hamas used to meet in that region, so it's an important strategic outpost. Israel has been very careful over the last couple of days to try to evacuate everyone who's there. It's interesting how few patients are actually in the hospital and how many people are just hiding out. But as we're talking at this time, there were mixed reports about whether some of the hostages might be found or, or whether there might be bodies of hostages there. The IDF so far has tried to play down the idea that they know anything for a fact about whether hostages are there now or whether there might be hostages who are sadly no longer with us who might be there, where they're saying we don't have any concrete evidence, but they're pretty sure that hostages were held there at some point, And that's one of the reasons why they're operating in the hospital right now. So we're not going to have any definitive answers on this program, but our listeners should keep track of that during the course of the afternoon and evening, whatever time zone you're in after you listen to this, because this is going to be a developing story. Just before I add another thing that we should be keeping our eyes on, a comment about the hospitals when the US imposed sanctions, for example, on Iran. So they say, for example, there's going to be dual use technology, a technology that can be used for military purposes, or also for civilian purposes. That's a common term that's used over there. I think in the Gaza context and in the Palestinian context in general, hospitals are what you might call dual use technology. Yes, they actually do treat patients over there, fix broken legs and remove uh, tonsils and what have you. But they are very much military installations. I think they are there, they're under Hamas's control. And in the West Bank, we saw a couple of weeks ago, the raid of the IDF raid, a dramatic undercover raid in a hospital in Janine, if I'm not mistaken. So these are dual use institutions. But another thing we should be keeping our attention on is the North, because as yesterday, the a very deadly Hezbollah barrage aimed at the North, a young soldier was killed in the Northern Command Base. If anyone's ever been to so two parts of fast, there's the kind of touristy bit, which is the old city. But the other hilltop, which is part municipal town, the modern city, is called Harakanan. And there, that is Northern Command's base. And the fact that Hezbollah was able to reign, to penetrate the defenses, we're talking about this is the very central base for Israel's military strategy in the north. The fact they were able to penetrate that, obviously, is going to have to be looked at in terms of the air defenses. But it also shows us, yet again, these Hezbollah is not a bunch of armed peasants. These are a sophisticated organization. And that is why I think we've seen that the IDF, Israel in general, does not want to be drawn into a battle with them. We've said this again and again, but you can see we're going through what is an undeclared war, which Israel is trying to keep this away from a two-front two battle. And we don't know. We know, and it's an open question. We really don't know. What are Hezbollah's intentions? Do they really want to goad Israel into a full attack? It's hard to credit that. They might have done something more than that. They certainly seem to want to tie down Israeli troops and to be seen to be doing a lot. And given the fact that the IDF is tied up in the South, they are given pretty free hand to continue to dictate the pace of events, I would say. It's hard to say exactly what their motives are right now, but we do know that we've discussed it on the program before that Hezbollah has a devastating array of weapons that they could deploy against Israel. I don't want to scare people, but they could cause massive destruction and they can put a lot of our infrastructure in Israel out of business, at least for uh, a few days at a time if they decided to. 
But it's also important to remember that whenever Hezbollah's capabilities are, the IDF's capabilities are much greater. And that's what's holding Hezbollah back. Uh, the fact that they know that if they go too far, that the IDF's uh, response will be more than devastating to them. A couple of days ago, there were reports that a lot of IDF jets were uh, circling the skies in Beirut. That was obviously a warning to uh, Hezbollah not to get too cute, because if you do, we're going to make you pay and you're going to pay severely. So you're right. I don't think either side really wants an escalation right now. But as many uh, analysts point out, sometimes escalations just happen because everyone is trying to one up the other. And then at a certain point, someone says, okay, one of the sides says, I'm not going to take this anymore. And they decide to uh, launch something more serious. So it's a moving target right now. And it's a story that's developing. And we have to doubt them that things stay muted. Another story that's developing that we need to daven for is our old favorite, but now a perennial favorite of ours. Unfortunately, a perennial obsession of the Washington people, the two-state solution. And it's really back with a vengeance. Overnight, we had the Washington Post headline that the U.S. and Arab nations planning for post-war Gaza at a time of Palestinian state in a subhead in which initial ceasefire for the release of hostages is seen as key to providing space to introduce a new peace deal. And beyond those lines say it all. Biden, the Biden administration is moving ahead, at least in verbal terms, talking about the day after in Gaza, when to be honored, the day before isn't yet over, right? I think you might say in that way. And the second thing to see is there in the subhead, the ceasefire is intended to become permanent. We should be very wary of lengthy ceasefires because they are intended to be permanent over here. Abinyam, what's your take on this? And I know this is somewhat of a punching bag on the other's program, but what can we say? It's not just a talking point. This is really serious. What's your take? This is something I've been writing about for 20 years at Mishpacha. Next week, we're coming out with edition 1000. I was involved at the very beginning. Yes, I was involved in the very beginning of just first doing translations. And then I believe with edition 18, we started doing regular news, which we used to call Jewish geography. And the two-state solution has been a easy target, so to speak. It's a no-brainer to write about because it comes up all the time. The fact that it's coming out now it's really hard to explain because there's absolutely no reason why the U.S. should be pushing this. I'm just going to make one comment that I saw from somebody else today. I was reading an article in the Jerusalem Post. Uh, they did an interview with Ralph Reed, who's the head of one of the large evangelical Christian organizations in America. And he made one great point in a sentence where he said that when it comes to pressure, the U.S. ought to be pressuring Hamas to surrender and to release the hostages. Why on earth are they pressuring Israel to make concessions to uh, Hamas when we're in the middle of a war? That's one comment. Another piece that I saw was a gentleman, and I use a gentleman in quotes, by the name of Martin Griffiths. He's uh, the UN relief chief, whatever that means. It doesn't mean that, like in baseball, he comes out of the bullpen to relieve the starting pitcher, but he obviously has a high title. And he gave an interview to Sky News. Where's the quote that I'm looking for here from his conversation? He says that, number one, he said that he does not consider Hamas to be a terrorist group. His direct quote is, Hamas is not a terrorist group for us. It is a political movement. And the, well, the, the same Nazis were also a political movement, it might be said. They were very yeah. much a political movement. Very much. And they were also elected democratically by uh, the German people. And the final line of the article was speaking of Hamas's October 7th attack. Griffiths said, that he had, quote, total understanding of the trauma it had caused Israel, but that Israel would need to build a relationship with its neighbors regardless. 
In other words, with a guy who breaks into your home and kills your women and children, go out and be friends. Maybe when he's sitting in jail, bring, bring cookies and tea to him. And so this is part of the whole two-state solution mantra where people are totally off base. They have absolutely no idea who we're fighting against and why we're fighting. And unfortunately, I think there's some people here in Israel who don't know that either. And we have to be very strong here, Gedalia. I'm not sure exactly how to deal with it. I've heard some people say that Israel should annex, formally annex uh, Judea and Samaria if uh, the U.S. would move. Yeah, I would think so because it wouldn't be accepted by anyone, so it would be a waste of time. And I've heard other solutions along those lines, and I don't have the answer myself right now. Maybe by the time I write for the next headline, I will. But in the meantime, Israel has to be very strong at this point and just say that we absolutely reject this. There's no chance. And it has to come from more than just the right wing, Gedalia. What I've been seeing today is yeah. Amichai Chikli, Itamar Ben-Gavir. There are people, Netanyahu hasn't said a word yet, although we know where he stands. And uh, I think you're going to mention the Gidon Sar very shortly on this topic. But yeah. Gidon Sar is maybe one of the first person who's considered maybe to the center of right, if you will, who's speaking out against this. And we have to make sure that somehow that the message gets out and it gets out from all sides of the political spectrum. Because my feeling is that as soon as the U.S. and Britain and other people who are pushing this see that even the left and the center left is against this and how we get that across when everyone has their own political agendas is a challenge. But we've got to get that point across and it's got to be unanimous and across the board. Let me just pick up on that last point and then work backwards because there's a bit a lot to unpack in what you just said over there. I think a key voice here, and I'm just thinking on my feet in response, is that a key voice here is going to be President Herzog because Herzog is the kind of standard bearer of the left. He is welcome. If anyone, if there's any Israeli politician who's got entree to left-leaning governments and administrations in the cross of Western world, it's him. For all of obvious reasons, political and family and historic and whatever it is. And he has been notably active, actually sat quiet for quite a few weeks and just generally doing diplomatic stuff. But he is not afraid to give, to get involved in key issues. And I wouldn't be surprised if he is deployed or deploys himself in some capacity and in some way says, no, 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 there's an Israeli consensus that this is not the right time and place. I think it would certainly do the job were he to do. He's supposed to be at an international conference in Germany over the weekend. So that would be a, a good opportunity for him to speak out. It'll be interesting to see whether that's the point. And we're in contact actually with his people and we'd, it'd be interesting to follow up with them to say, is this going to happen or what's the position? But anyway, there was a couple more things and just we'll get to get on Sarah in a minute, but it just, there's a sense, perhaps you'll be able to enlighten me and listeners as to a particular historical comparison, which is that what I see over here is an echo. When you see a headline like that in the Washington Post, that the US and Arab nations are planning for a post-war Gaza and have a timeline for a Palestinian state, there's echoes of something of the dynamic that Israel has long feared, actually back in the Cold War. The constant fear of Israeli leaders was that the great powers, meaning the US, and to a lesser extent Britain, were going to, the Europeans were going to impose, talk over Israel's little head and impose grand bargain and peace between the Arabs and Israel, which obviously that back then would have been very much to Israel's disadvantage. And to see a headline like that, that they're going to, that the US and Arab nations are planning, who are you to plan? What about us? Then it's very uncomfortable echoes for me. Is there any parallel there, Binyamin? The bottom line is that in order to enforce such a decree of a Palestinian state, ultimately, they would have to send armed forces to Israel. 
And are they willing to do that? I have my doubts. But on the other hand, we do have the prophecy of the War of Gog Magog, and that the nations of the world at some point will come and gather and fight over Jerusalem. We don't know exactly how that's going to play out. We, we are familiar with the prophecies, and, but they don't necessarily have to play out, from what I understand, in a very scary way. However, scary it has certainly played out recently, Benjamin. Look, it could come to that. And I think the important thing for us, other than, like I said before, politically, that we have to speak out unanimously against it, but we have to gird ourselves and we have to stay very strong. We have absolutely no idea how this is all going to play out. It could be that we're not quite ready for Gogo Mago. It could be that we're in the middle of it and this is part of it. But we have to, aside from, as I said earlier, that politically we have to have a political response. We as a people have to be strong. We have to be firm. Kazak Vemats is the term that the Naf uses. We have to gird ourselves. We have to be very strong. We have to have Muna, faith, Bijachon. We have to trust in God that the process will play out in our favor. But we also have to remember that we are the nation that stands alone. And when it comes down to it, with the exception maybe of Micronesia, I don't think we can count on anyone to stand up for us. So we've got to do it ourselves with our faith in God. Well, that is certainly a more prophetic turn of events than this podcast has hosted for a while. But I just want to go back to the political and just say that there's short of armies marching on the Middle East and the U.S. Marine Corps washing up in Ashdod or something like that. There's also economic levers, major economic levers that the U.S. holds over. And I think you'll remember back in, it was Shamir, Yitzhak Shamir was drag kicking and screaming to the Madrid peace table via an economic lever. And that the U.S. does hold. But my feeling is that Israel is stronger than it was back in the 90s. It's more equipped and there's a stronger and more verbose right wing in America that is actually going to stand up for Israel and say, this isn't going to happen. If I may, I just want to add that many countries have survived, I wouldn't say thrived, but survived sanctions. Iran has been sanctioned for many years. Russia has been sanctioned after their invasion of Ukraine. South Africa suffered sanctions. And again, I'm not saying these countries have thrived, but they can survive. So might we have to put up with a lower standard of living for a period of time? It's a possibility, but I think the point you made is very good that we also have to keep in mind that there are good things that can happen on the political front as well, that we do have a lot of support from the rank and file around the world. I mentioned evangelical Christians in America for one, and they live in other countries as well. And also, we also have to keep in mind that America is heading into an election season and the likely Republican nominee was much more favorably disposed to Israel than the present Democratic president. And things could end up changing very quickly. Israel has to hold out for the next few months. Again, if we say no, and if we deploy our troops, we don't want to dare the nations of the world to invade us. We're not looking for this kind of a battle that I mentioned and described before. But if we deploy our troops in Judea and Samaria along the Golan, and we say, no, we're holding our territory and uh, hold out for a few more months, we could find that we're in a totally different and better situation towards the end of the year and the early part of 2025. Okay, we've stepped over into much more apocalyptic territory than I think is or won't. And Benjamin, it has to be said, we've been in this kind of apocalyptic state for months now, which is actually the basis of this podcast, let it be said. Let me just end this segment over here with a quote actually directly from this week's magazine, because we had a good interview with Gidon Saar, who is a very experienced minister, formerly of the Likud, then turned against Bibi, and he's now part of Benny Gantz's party. But the substance of the interview was that Saar is holding the much more left-leaning Benny Gantz into the coalition, to the government. And he's doing so because, as he said in the interview, 
Now is not the time for politics. Now is not time for anything else. And it's an interesting interview. I just want to quote because he does respond to what is this ongoing and developing story of the Washington Post and the two-state solution thing. He had a few lines to say, in which, uh, and it's worth quoting, he says that he was asked by Avi Bloom and Dusty Elitov, is it worth saying no to the Palestinian state even at the cost of losing a deal with Saudi Arabia? And this has been something you've said repeatedly. And he answered, he said, yes, but to be very clear about what a Palestinian state means. A Palestinian state means we wouldn't have the security control in either Gaza or Judea and Samaria. No state, and this is crucial, can have freedom of action within the territory of another sovereign state. There's simply no such thing. Berega, at the moment that you give them a seat in the United Nations as an official sovereign state, just to go into the arrest of few terrorists, you will literally be invading a sovereign state. That cannot happen. He continues, are we ready for this? Are we willing to sign away our security? Are we willing to return to the situation October the 7th? Not only in Gaza, but in Judea and Samaria as well. After all, it's clear to everyone, including the Palestinians, that a Palestinian state would not end the conflict, but, but can serve as a stepping stone for continued aggression. And this is the final line. He says, there's a paradox between the Palestinians' state and reward for October the 7th. Did America offer al-Qaeda a state after 9-11? That's a crucial thing, Binyamin. He's saying that we are literally incentivizing terror by rewarding them with a state. And so the whole basis of this thing's got to go. And as he's an influential voice, and I hope there's others more to his left who come out in support. Yeah, if Gantz and Lapid come out and say more or less the same things, then I think that would make a big difference. We know Lapid has always been more of a right-winger when it comes to security issues, but he can also be a flip-flopper when it comes to that. And Dan seems to go with the flow. He hosted, was it last year? He hosted Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority. He hosted him in his home in Russia, Ayin. He had to go out his way to do that. It's a very close signal of intent. But and I think the Americans are basically playing Gantz quite a bit. Every time Secretary of State Blinken comes here, he has private meetings with, I shouldn't say the opposition, because Gantz really is not in the opposition right now, at least in an official kind of way. He's part of the war cabinet. But Lemaisa, he is in the opposition. He sees the polls, which shows that he's doing well, although I think those polls would change dramatically if we have new elections. And Lincoln comes in, he tries to look for leverage, he tries to look for ways in which he can pry people loose from Netanyahu's grip on them. And who knows what he's behind closed doors promising them if they resist and if they play along with the U.S. And that's always been a tremendous temptation for Israeli politicians. The average Israeli and the average Israeli politician feels that we're very beholden to the U.S. and very dependent on them, more so than I think that we really are. And they refuse to contemplate life without a U.S. support. But, for example, as I wrote in my article this week in the Rose Report, that sometimes the price might be too high to pay. And we have to realize that the rule book has changed, as I put it. And Israelis have to realize that the rule book has changed also. And they have to really take a much more critical and cynical look at the U.S. support and what it entails and what the U.S. wants from Israel in return. I mean, I want to just to summarize, you're raising this whole issue of the U.S. And certainly this administration is talking out both sides of its mouth and trying to execute a very delicate dance at the one time supporting Israel in weapon supplies. At the other hand, notably working against what many Israelis see as their interests in favor of this, as, as we've discussed at length over here. I think that it's not fooling. I don't think it's working. And I think it was best expressed this week by the European Union's foreign policy chief, who's definitely no friend of Israel, Joseph Borrell. And he said the following thing to Biden in a speech aimed at the American administration. He said, if you believe that too many civilians are being killed in Gaza, maybe, and he actually said it like this in a kind of half-mocking way, you should stop providing the weapons to kill them. 
And I don't find myself agreeing with Joseph Borrell that often. So he is definitely a first in terms of the homebrew podcast. And I say, he's true. He's absolutely correct. He said, the fact that Biden's inability to full-throatedly back Israel and say that any casualties, that many thousands of Gaza casualties are actually Hamas's fault, his inability, the inability of the administration to, or the abandonment of that early administration position, and they lead exactly to this position. If indeed Israel is doing too much, then why help them? And obviously, Binyam, the answer is that we're not doing too much. There is simply no way that any other country would take this lying down. Let's try and imagine if Luxembourg had suddenly burst through the borders of France and started doing exactly this, gunning down French citizens and kidnapping them, schlepping them off to wherever Luxembourg is, right? Do you not think that Emmanuel Macron of France would wipe them off the map? He'd eviscerate them. If Guatemala did this to the United States, Biden would level the place. Just look, we've said this before, but look what they did when 3,000 US citizens were killed on 9-11. They occupied two major sovereign countries thousands of miles away for two decades and killed tens, if not hundreds of thousands. And for me, Binyam, this holier-than-thou act, it's a break on bigotry. And the hypocrisy is hard to believe. But I think it's American incoherence that has left the Biden administration open to the charges of the Europeans. They say, if indeed you're killing too many civilians, why would not stop them providing weapons? I think now, Benjamin, it's time for Biden to get to abandon all that, even handing us and just say, sorry, it's actually Hamas's fault. I don't hold that much hope for it, though, Benjamin. No, the Biden administration won't be the ones to do that. We already see which way they're headed. There could be a new administration come next January. And that's why I'm saying Israel needs to hold out. They need to delay. They need to stall. Just the President Trump is doing it. If you watch how he's handling his defense in all the cases against him, his lawyers are really doing a very masterful job in putting things off and delaying. And Israel knows how to do that also diplomatically. We have a lot of experience at this. We also have to look at the bright side in that Israel definitely has the uh, capabilities of formulating a diplomatic response to this that uh, will forestall some of the worst case scenarios. And I think that's perhaps a good note that we could conclude on. I'd like to, you were just thinking actually, as you reference our bright spots, I don't have anything from the parasha and I don't have anything from current events, but actually I was just thinking about it. I believe this is our 56th episode and obviously it's not been from times, but what has developed is a large and notably dedicated audience. People come up to me and say, that they follow the broadcast. And so that is the bright spot for me today, which is that thanks to our audience and to all of you out there, who you are. I don't know who all of you are, Yaman and I, but we thank you very much for following along. Wish you all a good and healthy Shabbos. 